0: The following audio is via a Skype call. I don't understand you people. I mean, all these picky little points you keep bringing up, they don't mean nothing. TGIF, it's Manson
1: Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air.
0: Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. I'm Gary Mance. I'm
2: Suzanne Mitchell.
0: Together, we are Manson Mitchell in your ears for the hour and happy to have you with us of a Friday. Of course, we are coming to you through the good graces and technological expertise of he whom we refer to as bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. Benny, how are you today, sir?
3: Bend down the hatches. The big one's coming in. Save yourselves.
2: Okay, speaking,
3: maybe it's a little
0: bit over
2: the top there. but Speaking of uh, saving yourselves, <laughs> I've already done a lot of cleanup around uh. the outside of the villa because whatever <laughs> is going to be left out there is going to be blowing all over the neighborhood. That's true. Last thing to come in will be the garbage can. (laughs)
0: That's right. (laughs) Uh, Next week's show, our our bumper music may be blowing in the wind. There you go. We'll see how that goes. We're going to be pulling our patio furniture in Florida. Of course, it's called a Florida room. We're going to be pulling that furniture and the plants inside and just hunkering down for who knows what. It's, a, it's definitely going to hit Florida. We just don't know where exactly and whether or not it will travel up the Atlantic coastline. We're not sure. That part we don't know. But when we're not doing radio, we have the TV on to the weather channel and we pay attention. So I feel like great- after
2: all these years, if you don't mind me interrupting, Gary, of, of meteorologists mm-hmm. knowing and, and understanding the, the patterns and the systems, they don't know where it's going to go, where it's going to hit. Um, you know, I, I, said, I said even the hmm. hurricane doesn't know where it's going to hit. Oh. But we've been learning oh. a lot about it because uh, wh- how it moves uh, has to do with high uh, pressures and low pressures that are in the environment. It has to do with wind shears. Okay. It has to do with is it moving 10 miles an hour or 13 miles an hour. And so there are so many variables. That's why they cannot be as exact. However, and what Gary and I have talked about many times before is you've got 4 or 5 days warning. You have no warning when it comes to an earthquake. You're just in yes. it. But here, you got all kinds of warning to prepare. And so we are in preparation mode for Hurricane Dorian, which is scheduled to make landfall here sometime I think around right. Monday. Right.
0: And for your next weather update, Suzanne will be back at the 10s for... (laughs) Yes, exactly. That was well said, though, right away, yeah. This is so... Precision (laughs) defies us. We we just are not able to be that precise. I wish we could be. On the other hand, I go back to May of 1980, and uh, pretty much the prognostication regarding Mount St. Helens Uh, was, I think that sucker's going to (laughs) blow. Didn't that reach, like, halfway across the nation, the ash fallout? I believe it I know, Quite Don't. a portion, that's yeah. for sure. Uh, regionally, I know that I remember the footage on TV of Portland at noon, and it looked like midnight. Yeah. Oh, uh, well, actually, it brings up a good story real fast. I, I, I won't keep you, but uh, when I lived in Alaska in 90, that was when Mount Readout blew up. And we were uh, like just ready to leave that state and just happened to knock on our door, too. It was crazy. In the middle of the afternoon, it was like mm, maybe 2, 3. That's not middle of the afternoon, but enough. But you look outside, yes, it was just pitch black from all the ash fallout it was amazing mother nature yep. doing her thing we're going to spend the balance of this hour doing our thing with the gentleman that we have not met before we're about to meet him on air as you will what an extraordinary scholarly man he is he's the kind of guy i want to sit down and at least have a starbucks coffee with if not a full-blown lunch because he has tremendous wisdom to share his book is called disruptive play the trickster That's right. The trickster in politics and culture, Shepard Siegel, PhD. Now, we do have some mad props for him on the back of the book. Suzanne, if you please.
2: Right from the back of the book, Shepard Siegel was a rock and jazz musician, then educator, earning his doctorate at UC Berkeley. He has over 30 publications and numerous awards, one of which he just got, which we're going to ask him about. He returned to his countercultural roots to write disruptive play and share its message of the playfulness and progressive change. Dr. Siegel lives in, drumroll, please, Seattle with a growing community of merry pranksters. We are having him on Manson Mitchell for the first time today and we are very excited because he has a tremendous book and a tremendous idea. Welcome to Manson Mitchell, Dr. Shepard Siegel. Good to have you on
1: today. Thanks so much, Suzanne and Gary. It's, a, it's a really a pleasure to be here.
0: We're delighted to have you with us, Shepard, and we, we just know that you have so much to share. I doubt we can get through it in an hour. In fact, I know that we cannot. So uh, by reading your book, I'm already trying to set up a second interview, a round two in my mind, but first things first. First
2: things first is right. The title of the book is Disruptive Play, and you got Gary and I talking quite a bit as we were getting into the beginning part of your book because you identified three types of play, original play, cultural play, and disruptive play, and that had us putting the book down and having a big, long conversation about the three types of play that he and I have been into during our lifetimes. So for the sake of bringing our listeners into the conversation, why don't you go ahead and discuss the three types of play that you talk about in the book?
1: Sure, and, you know, um, your um, opening conversation about the hurricane uh, really gives me an opportunity to talk about playfulness in a way that I don't, I don't get to uh, very often. You know, I, I wrote this book twice, and uh, the first time I wrote it, it was really a, just about play and the notions of play in my research on play. And uh, later on, which will also be later on in our conversation, I, 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 I all of a sudden started learning more about the trickster and the trickster archetype, and I had to go back and rewrite the whole book with that, with that new knowledge. But if we just talk about play itself, you know, I am going to guess that um, not only is Hurricane Dorian difficult to predict, but that it's very hard to get a meeting with the hurricane where you can actually sit down and maybe come to some agreement about when it's going hit, to hit, hit the ground. In, in other words, nature is, by its nature, irrational. It's irrational, and there's no matter how good our science gets, there's always an element of nature that's that's a mystery to us that we cannot put our rational thinking on. And the one gateway that we human beings have to that irrationality of the universe is play, is playfulness. When the little baby plays or when animals play with each other in a non-competitive way, they're really just frolicking there, it, it's an irrational activity. It's just for fun. It stimulates laughter, and there's something irrational about laughter and why we laugh and how we laugh and how we enjoy laughter and how we, how we just have fun. Uh, fun itself is somewhat irrational. And there's one model of the history of humanity where um, this irrationality of nature, of course, you know, scared the heck out of uh, early versions of human beings, you know, whether it was the wild animals that were able to kill us very easily or weather events or geologic events that could kill us. And so we constructed a society built on rationality that could also protect us from the irrational forces of nature um, and protect us as best we could. And we see even in 2019, there's limitations to that, right? But, um, but, some, but, but when, and as we've done that and, and we came to believe in rationality, we lost, we lost track of our ability to be irrational. So, um, But in, under the protection that we've created, we, we have a chance to explore that again through playfulness. So really, let me get to your question. Original play is that kind of playfulness that we as infants are able to do. We all know that the infant-human is more vulnerable than any other animal but it's also the time in life when we're more like other animals and we are able to play instinctively now what happened and so that is what original play is and one could speculate and hypothesize that that kind of playfulness exists from the molecular level to the planetary level you know the in The area of music, they talk about the music of the spheres, that uh, the movement of the planets itself creates some kind of music and some kind of playfulness. At any rate, as we hit toddlerhood, our parents and culture starts to look at the little infant who's playing, frolicking, for lack of a better term, and says, you know, you know, you could keep score. You know, you could turn that into a game. You could have winners and losers, and even if you're just playing by yourself, you can go for a personal best and start to keep track of it. And at that moment, original play migrates into this second kind of play, cultural play, which is based on competition, and from there is birthed the idea of achievement and also the ideas of, of commerce and competition. And there's nothing wrong with that. you know. Um, we all, we all um, can benefit from the competitive play that characterizes cultural play. But I would say right at the outset that it's just gotten out of hand in our society. We're just overly competitive. And there's all kinds of negative things that happen from being overly competitive, um, environmental damage not being the least of them, but also... When we're too preoccupied with cultural play, with high achievement, with winning the game, we squeeze out that space in our lives where we might be engaging in original play, and we lose touch with it. So to repeat, I'm not against cultural play. I'm just saying we're way, way out of balance. And, of course, when cultural play gets completely out of hand, then you have its very worst form, which which is war which is the ultimate uh, competitive thing, that politics is the ultimate competitive arena, and war is the ultimate competitive activity that politics can lead to. So what's disruptive play? Quite simply, disruptive play is when what someone introduces original play into an arena that has been designated as the place for, for cultural play. So to give you a very banal example, just for the purpose of... Of, of, of making it obvious. You might remember back in the day when uh, there was this thing called streaking, you know, and you'd be at an NFL football game, very, very competitive activity, and somebody would take all their clothes off and run across the field and, and, of course, get ushered off the field. It's a somewhat banal example, but that explains it. You know, that's the idea of somebody calling the game, somebody getting in that arena and refusing to play the game and calling, calling the game and saying, we really shouldn't be competing at this moment. We should just be playing with each other. And it's very disruptive. It's not appreciated. Let me pause there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Gary and I are, are laughing over uh, here. <laughs> I'm
0: laughing because I actually, on one occasion at a frat house party in Orange County, California, participated in a streaking event. I <laughs> went and only time and uh, <laughs> several years later We're I went streaking to the
3: quad. A... Let's do it. Yeah, Woo! We're yeah it the
0: wasn't quad. the quad. It, oh. it was inside the confines of oh. the Greek system. No. No. <laughs> sure, sure. I have <laughs> only
1: I have only one question for you. Was it fun? Um I would
0: say oh. it, it wasn't so much fun as it was exhilarating in the moment because I accepted a dare. So to that degree I suppose it was fun. Okay. All know, right. I, I I wouldn't do it again there. I went to to a clothing optional community in Malibu several years later. Now, that was an interesting experience because it was an all-day event. And I do recall feeling naked in every sense of the word. I was vulnerable. I conscientiously made myself vulnerable to this experience. And that, too, was a challenge, but one that I posed to myself. And I wanted to treat it. As a kind of sacred play, can I put myself into the situation and emotionally survive? Am I going to be scarred for life? No, I wasn't scarred for life, but I learned some things about people who make themselves vulnerable to each other by agreement. Ah,
1: ah, that's that's that's, that's a really a night, nice, and, and, and that's absolutely true. When you can get into a, a safe place where it's safe safe to be playful, yeah. Um, Sh- Shepherd, but, I
2: was. Go ahead. I was um, thinking when Gary and I were talking uh, earlier before our interview with you about these different types of play. Yeah. I was um, I am four years older than my sister. And when I was going to school and in first grade and second grade and third grade, she was still at home. We didn't have preschool back in the day. And so uh, she was home, and I would, I would come home from school, and I had already transitioned into the cultural play, but I would see her playing with um, dollies uh, on uh, uh, either the, the front porch or out in the backyard or something where she would be all the characters in her household. Oh. And so she had the father's voice, the mother's voice, the kids' voices, They were all talking to one another, and I can remember just standing there and looking at her, and she was laughing. She was enjoying herself. She had made up some scenario of what was going on in this particular household that she was the god of, and she was enjoying herself. But I looked at her being, say, uh, three or four years old, and I was, you know, seven or eight, and so I, I thought that that was baby play. <laughs> and so I had to enroll her in actual games like a, a Parcheesi or a Sorry or a board game where you rolled the dice, where you had structure, where you had somebody who won and somebody who lost. And so when I was when we were reading your book, it was so clear to me mm. about that playfulness, which happens When, as you say, there is no purpose in the play. It's it's meaningful to the person who's playing, but there's no end game. There's nothing to achieve. There is only the joy of playing. And it also reminded me of my uh, twin nieces when they were too young to speak, when they were maybe a year, year and a half old and the two of them would talk to each other in a language nobody else could understand, and they would laugh. Oh, that's
1: they would wonderful.
2: Be, they would be gobbledygook to one another, these two twin girls, uh, and blah, 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 ah, 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 and they would laugh, right. and no one, no one understood a single word they were saying, but it was their play, and we watched them play together. So I really got that distinction that you made between the original play and and the the uh, cult acculturated type of play, right. and right. then getting getting into that disruptive play, which which is completely fascinating when you look at it over the centuries, because it didn't just start with streakers. You you lay out a, a whole long scenario of how this has been going on for millennia.
1: Yes, 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 indeed. But I I really like you made a very important and nuanced point, and you used the exact right words when you said you were describing your sister's play and your your, your cousin's or your niece's play, um, that it was meaningful but not purposeful, that there's a difference. There wasn't a purpose. They weren't trying to win. They weren't trying to achieve anything in particular. They were just having fun, but it was very meaningful to them. I mean, especially with your younger sister, well, with both examples that you gave. Right. And, and let me be clear. Um, I'm a member of the Association for the Study of Play, and it's a small but uh, joyful cadre of researchers all, all over the country, really all over the world. And they've come up with 138, and counting, different forms of play. So I'm not suggesting that original, cultural, and disruptive are the only types of play but for the purposes of what I'm trying to say in the book and the purposes of just having this conversation with you, Suzanne, is, is the the, the, they're, they're the, the, de- the definitions I want to work with, because when you describe your little sister, that's kind of like role-playing play, right, where she was right. pretending to be the mom or the, you know, mistress of the household and everything. So, yeah, very, very yeah. interesting stuff, yeah. Yeah. Um, And you're right, Uh, disruptive play has a a long history. And so, you know, the question that I asked was like, well, well, do we all lose this ability to be playful like when we were little babies? Or are there some people who, as they become grown-ups, they yet retain the ability to be playful they were as a little child? And the easy examples of those kinds of humans are uh, are frequently comedians. You know, uh, people like Andy Kaufman and Robin Williams come to mind. Groucho Marx, Jonathan Winters, Catherine Hepburn, Lucille Ball, um, Yayoi Kusama. If you know who she is, uh, Yoko Ono. Actually, there. You know, there's, and, 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 and there's. There's. There's been all kinds of folks, and this is where the trickster archetype comes in. If you are, and you don't have to be a celebrity, uh, and, and let me add one other note. Um, my 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 doctoral studies were actually in special education, and I've spent a lot of time working with young people, generally of high school age, uh, with 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 the full array of disabilities. And um, it it's it's never fair to generalize uh, a, about a population completely. But I have to say, after working with hundreds of uh, young people with down syndrome and that, that form of a developmental disability, I have found it extremely common that those individuals never forget how to be playful. They, they have a real gift, a real gift to share with the rest of us, and they are able to retain, they instantly can be in touch with their playfulness with, 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 with no effort whatsoever. It's a, part, it's a part of who they are, um, more often than not. I'm sure there's exceptions. Well, um, I
2: like that because, you know, when we think of special needs children, it's like, well, what what do they need that we can provide them when actually it's reciprocal and they have something they can provide uh, to us as well? Isn't that the case?
1: That is exactly the case, and thanks for saying it so well. Yes, that is so right that it, they have assets and value to offer us. Every every human being does, but in this case, it's it's. I think it's the gift of playfulness, um, and I, I always I always felt good hanging out with with, the, with those guys, and uh, and it, it is a part part of uh, who I am, and part of part of what I write about. Um, there, as you know, there's a chapter in the book that talks about my work with uh, some of those uh, young folks. But in the non, in in the other area, you, you you get your comedians or some of the obvious obvious folks who who are able to bring that sense of playfulness, and it's partly, you know, why they are successful as comedians. But even if you're not famous, and you are that kind of a grown-up who is still in touch with playfulness, you're going to encounter, consciously or unconsciously, you're going to encounter the trickster archetype, which, you know, connects to a Jungian outlook on life, that all of us, our personalities are a mixture of of different archetypes. So you could have the mother or the hero or the warrior or the magician. Um, They're all personality types that affect us. I I like to cite the Star Wars movies because we're all so familiar with those. So the Star Wars movies are an exploration of the hero archetype. And the way that I use the term archetype and the term trickster and the term hero is that They're like demigods. They're not god-god, but they're like these minor gods. And uh, a human being cannot quite be an archetype. But as they say about the hero archetype in Star Wars, oh, the Force is strong in her, right? So someone can have a lot of that hero archetype. So it's the same thing with the trickster. I don't propose any particular human beings to be tricksters, but for some folks, the Force is... Is particularly strong in them, and that will begin to inform that person's uh, personality. Um, I, I, I like
2: that, yeah, because um, no one is a single archetypal correct. character. We're all a mix of some. Exactly. And so you're saying no one is a hundred percent trickster. It would it would probably be exhausting, and they'd burn out. But <laughs> But it's part of who they are, you know, and they have other roles in their in their archetypal bag. They do other things as well. Right. But, you know, and and one of the things I said to Gary, because he was talking about, um, you know, his his being trickster on a couple of occasions. And I said, you know what, Gary? I said, that's not one of my archetypes, because I feel like the trickster archetype is about breaking down things especially when you're talking about that cultural play which is so competitive where there's a winner and a loser and then the 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 trickster comes along and kind of turns things on its on its head and i said that's not my role Mm -hmm. i'm 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 more about building things up than tearing them down, but it seems like the trickster is about tearing things down. What? Where do you stand on that? Well,
1: well, they like to break rules. You know, there's there's about seven attributes to the trickster, and and breaking rules is one of them. They never they never met a boundary they did not relish uh, crossing, um, and I'm generally is like as you recall in the book when I talk about. The um, some of the beat artists, you know, William Burroughs and Jack Kerouac and Allen uh, Ginsberg. I'm really clear that um, these aren't role models. <laughs> they're not. No. They're pioneers, and they went and they broke rules and they tore some things down to our benefit, because sometimes when you tear something down, it lets you see something that had previously been obscured. And if I can take your comment and, and tr- try to um, uh, extrapolate it to to a whole societal concept, like if if what we're here about, at least the three of us are here about, is wanting to live in a better society, wanting society to get better. My proposition is not that uh, the world should become a world based on the trickster archetype, but that there, but that but that we are out of balance, and we need to learn how to welcome the trickster you know the classic book it came out actually in the early 90s called trickster makes this world by Lewis Hyde and he talks about all the all the different trickster characters and his one of his very main points is you can't suppress the trickster so like Suzanne if you were you were in charge of a a community or a country and a planet and you wanted to build things up and in order to keep building things you had to suppress the trickster because the trickster kept trying to knock it down, eventually you're going to pay a price. Eventually the pressure is going to build, and like all archetypes, you can't you can't kill an archetype. You can't get rid of it. So you have to figure out a way to somehow integrate it in into what you're doing. Am I making sense?
3: Yes.
0: Yes. You're making great sense because if you if you provide space for an archetype to play itself out in any segment in society or in the whole of society the powers that be structurally have a way to contain it i think that that's all part of the game yes we can allow this craziness as we establishmentarians might see it and i don't count myself among them but but looking at it from their point of view if i can allow it some safe expression i can contain it and then i get to stay in charge
1: sure Exactly. And, and, and it's interesting, If you know, another really, really great book is um, a seminal book. It came out in the mid-1950s, 1956. It's called The Trickster uh, by Paul Radin, an anthropologist who uh, recorded the stories from the Winnebago tribe, uh, a Native American tribe, who are the stewards of the oldest trickster uh, tales we know and uh, Jung himself wrote the introduction to the book and talks about how the trickster actually has savior-like qualities, that sometimes when tearing things down, it lets us see, see so- something uh, greater. But, but they're tricky. They're tricky little guys. You know, you know they're, not, they're not evil, but um, they're, they're not good either. <laughs> they just want to have fun, and this scares folks a little bit. And it's, like I said, they're not role models. I'm not suggesting that people go out and behave amorally, but I am suggesting that within our own minds, as an exercise, that we let go of morality for a moment and swim about in the world of fun, the world of play. I mean, can you say that an infant who is fooling around and gurgling and wrestling and playing and laughing, can you say that that infant has moral agency? Is good or evil? Is neither. I mean, we like to say they're inherently good because they're so I- innocent. But, it, but in fact, there's, there, there, there's no moral directive that that infant is following. So, I, and I hate using computer metaphors, but it is kind of like a reboot. It's a way to reboot morality. And as you study the trickster cycle, you see that as the cycle completes, the trickster moves from a position of amorality to a rebirth of morality. So it's kind of it's kind of like a, a reboot uh, in that sense. And so like-
0: I love the way you put that, Shepard, as yeah. we go into break. I'm going to keep that in mind, and let's follow up on that on the other side of the break. Sometimes a trickster reboots morality, and sometimes the trickster just boots morality.
1: <laughs> well said.
0: Both have their uses. And let's get to the beat generation. On the other side of this break, I am fascinated by the beats i can tell that Shepard siegel phd is as well in his scholarly manner and lively in his discussion of it in a wonderful book called disruptive play the trickster in politics and culture our discussion will continue in a couple of minutes stay tuned we are manson mitchell and you are tuned into the home of alternative talk in seattle am 1150 the preceding audio was via a skype call
3: Right now, Doctors Without Borders' medical teams are operating in some of the most remote and dangerous corners of the world. When front yards become front lines, when disaster erupts, when disease rages, when communities collapse under crisis, at the crossroads of conflict and epidemic, where there are no hospitals, that's where we operate. We go where conditions are the worst because that's where we're needed most. In nearly 70 countries, we're saving lives threatened by violence, disease, malnutrition, and catastrophic events. Donors are vital to our mission. Your response is critical to our response in places where a few others will go. That's where we operate. Learn more at doctorswithoutborders.org. Talk radio with a purpose.
0: Alternative Talk 1150. Brilliantly done, Benny Oh, he
2: is, he is aces. He <laughs> I could <is>. pass it <laughs> off. I could just, is just the top. He's,
0: he's the top. <laughs> and She's yet, a, the a cautionary note, but if you go carrying pictures of Chairman Mao, <laughs> you ain't going to make it with anyone anyhow. <laughs> so, oh, my God. Well played. <laughs> we are speaking with Shepard Siegel, PhD. What a scholarly gentleman, and what a beautiful writer. I am in love with his work. Disruptive Play, The Trickster in Politics and Culture. Let's do the marketing
2: piece. Absolutely. Dr. Shepard, if people would like to get this book, but even more than that, if they would like to see you in person, you're going to be in a lot of places in and around the Northwest, and I'd like you to talk about that. If you don't have your schedule right in front of you, I have your schedule. But we want to make sure that people know where they can see you and get their books signed. And also the fact that you just won another uh, writing award in Denver a few weeks ago. So spill the beans and tell our listeners everything about you.
1: Okay. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I, your, your, your compliments and my writing are, are, are so nice. And I, um, make me just feel great. They're just making my day. And, um, but the, the truth is, I don't see myself as a writer first, and the book for me has been this powerful vehicle. And it's not just that I'd like to sign your book if you, if you happen to come to a bookstore where I'm doing a signing, but I want to talk to people. Um, in some of the settings where I appear, I do a little bit of performance, and I uh, blatantly steal material from Andy Kaufman whenever I can. But the idea is to, well, you're just going to have to come to a performance, and the idea is to shake things up a little bit, then make it easier for us to have a conversation and connect. So it varies. So like when I'm at a store like a Barnes & Noble, so tomorrow, uh, Saturday, August 31st, two in the afternoon, there's a Barnes & Noble store in Olympia, and I'll be signing books, and if you're there, I'd love to just meet you and talk to you, and... Uh, have great conversation. I did this recently in Denver. It was fun. But then next week I am doing a workshop at the East West Bookshop uh, in Seattle. That's on 12th Avenue, I guess down in the Ravenna neighborhood. That'll be uh, just next Wednesday, September 4th at 7 p.m. And uh, every, every workshop, play shop, if you prefer, um, is a little bit different, and uh, I have a surprise if you can make it to East-West next Wednesday. Somebody, somebody bestowed a gift on me that I do not know what to do with it, and it's the, the folks who are into the metaphysics and, 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 and would go to stores like East-West Bookshop, uh, I need your help. I need your help because he threw me a curveball with this gift, it, I'll just say it's a totem of sorts, and I I don't know what to make of it. And he he took my my um, my love of tricksterism and the trickster, and he 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 threw down the gauntlet. And I, I have to there's something I need to learn how to embrace, but I want to embrace it properly because you know they're not evil, but they're not good. So when you're hanging out with trickster energy, you're rolling the dice a little bit. It's exciting. A uh, week from Sunday, I'll be at uh, Island Books on Mercer Island at 4 in the afternoon, and that will I I still have to figure things out with them as to whether I'll be doing a little bit of performing, which I like to do, and that performing leads into a conversation, kind of like the one we're having today, or I might just be sitting and signing. But I'll be there 4 in the afternoon at Island Books in Mercer Island. Uh, Still in the Northwest, uh, Federal Way, September 14th, there's a Barnes & Noble there on on Saturday. Highway 99 on the Pacific Highway, September 14th, one in the afternoon, Um, two more in the Northwest. I'm really excited to go up to Bellingham. And uh, Bellingham has this bookstore that uh, apparently is just, uh, uh, you know, some bookstores become community centers and gathering places. There's one out in Greenwood called Uncouth Buzzard. uh, that is It's not just a bookstore. It really is the community center of the Greenwood Greenwood neighborhood. And I understand Village Books in Bellingham is like that. And I will definitely be performing Wednesday, September 18th. And then finally, a new Renaissance bookshop in Portland, Oregon, on September 24th at 7 p.m. And that will also be something of a a performance.
2: Shepard, are all of these dates on your website
1: Yes, they are. And, that, yeah, you know, the only trick <laughs> is spelling my name correctly. Okay. So shepherd is just like the occupation. But, you know, tell me the last time you were able to hire a shepherd. It's not easy. They're not easy to find. But it is spelled just like that, S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D. Uh, Siegel is S-I-E-G-E-L. So shepherdseagull.com. Uh, will get you to my website and you can see all these uh, upcoming performances and book signings. Just, then I'm going to California and I'm going to Canada, but I think uh, I, I think I, I've shared with enough of the upcoming ones to get us through September.
2: Yes, absolutely, and with our audience primarily in the Seattle area and the Pacific Northwest, there are many opportunities for people to meet you in person, and I hope they will avail themselves of those opportunities. Heck, tell them you heard about them on Manson Mitchell. Yes, Give please us some do. credit.
1: <laughs> well, apparently Gary and I are having coffee, and if it goes well, we're having lunch. So uh, That's
3: right.
1: I'm looking forward I to know. meeting you guys. Yeah.
0: I am so up for that. Living in Sarasota makes it diagonally difficult to get to (laughs) Seattle until teleportation becomes a reality, at least, but I do look forward to my trips to Seattle. I call it my spiritual home, I'll tell that to anyone. That's how I feel about the Emerald City.
1: Oh, great, great, yeah. Shepard,
0: I want to ask you about the Beats. Oh man, did you ever, you brought up a subject that is near and dear to my heart, the Beat Generation. And here is where, at least as I see it, and you can study the beats for a lifetime as far as I'm concerned and would not waste a minute in doing so. When it comes to the beats, if I look at the person of Jack Kerouac, I see this this literary brilliance. I look at the poetry of Allen Ginsberg, and I see the brilliance and the pain that shines through it. When I look at Neil Cassidy, I see a genuine trickster who was a muse and an inspiration for people who were more accomplished as literary figures and yet were inspired much of the time in their writings in the person and by the actions and the compelling personality of Neil Cassidy. Is that pretty much the way you see it? How do you appreciate the Beats and their generation?
1: Yeah, oh boy, you know, um, Neil Cassidy, you nailed it. I, I, you know, there's a, there's a small handful of people, I think, who they're not okay. i got to stick by my own rule. They can't be an archetype, but they come pretty damn close. And Neil Cassidy is, is definitely one of those handful. In fact, I you know, I took the literary liberty uh, of writing about him as if he were a molecule that's green and purple and just bouncing all over the room because he was so non-stop and he was in a state of play of playfulness uh, constantly or so it so it seems um, and you know I want to say you know it's like it's like you said Gary there's been there's been a lot there's libraries you know there there's there's a whole library of books and you can you can spend the rest of your life studying it so why would why would I write chapter, really two chapters, about it without being redundant. And, and the point I want to make is that I, my contribution is to try to see the beats through this lens of playfulness, through this lens of the trickster, and also to put them into a, a political context. Um, let me share something, and I'm going to circle around, and, and, and I'm going to come back to Neil Cassidy. There is this uh, saying that's uh, attributed to uh, Mark Twain, though like many Mark Twain sayings, nobody can actually prove whether he said it, and that is that uh, history may not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And, and I noticed this historical rhyme, and I I'm, know I'm, I'm, I'm not the first person to have noticed it, but let's, let's go back to La Belle Epoque in, in, in France and how the Impressionists started playing being playful with light and paint and they took down the, the the French governmental structure that was controlling art and what is and was and wasn't art and so the Impressionists were these playful painters and rule breakers a little bit of trickster rolling around in, in, whether it's Monet or Picasso and 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 then along comes World War One, and this was particularly bloody and stupid war and the Dadas said you know if you're going to break some of the rules let's break all the rules and let's invent the art of absurdity and the time has come for the art of absurdity because World War one is so absurd and I write about that of course and then the war ends Dada dissipates moves into the uh, away from the political arena into the psychological arena and the dream world and you get surrealism. And now, two generations later, as the impressionists were playing with painting, so along come the Beats, and they start playing with poetry and literature, and they start breaking the rules. And uh, as you notice, so Neil Cassidy, uh, right? His output as a writer, right, Gary? N- not that much. Right. Not that much. Just a third of a third of a book. <laughs> but he was the muse to Jack Kerouac. Kerouac. You don't want to speculate, but it's uh, hard to imagine Kerouac writing the books he wrote without Neil Cassidy as his muse. And you find out that Allen Ginsberg had um, Carl Solomon, who we met in the Looney bin, right, as his muse. And that uh, William Burroughs had, I think it's her, her, Hubert Honkey, is that correct? Uh, yes. As, as his muse. And these were guys who... Who lived it out? He lived it out more than writing it down, and so these were these beautiful uh, partnerships. But the thing that I love here about Neil Cassidy is that with this echo or this repeated, this rhyme that repeats impressionism to Dada to surrealism, the beats, the the liberation that the beats were signifying becomes the hippies, you know, inspires the hippies. And more than anyone else, I mean, Ginsburg has to get some credit, too, because he hung out with Bob Dylan so much, you know, and and really became a countercultural figure as well as a beat figure. But Neil Cassidy accomplished uh, the same thing, if not more, moving from being Kerouac's muse and fooling around with Kerouac to becoming an integral member of the Merry Pranksters, um, an integral subject of at least three songs by the Grateful Dead and, and someone who, you know, who drove the further bus and the Merry Pranksters. And if, if nothing else, uh, Neil Cassidy is, is evidence of that historic rhyme of, 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 of connecting the beats uh, to the hippies and, and the counterculture. So he absolutely fascinated me as being... Um, I don't know if he inhabited a body or not. He he feels more like a a source of energy than a particular yes. body.
2: You, you know, Chef, when you when you talk about him in that way, I, I Robin Williams comes to mind a lot because he was just so stream of consciousness and in, in the way that he spoke and acted. Yes. But uh, yes. when you're when you're talking about how it was lived out more than writing it down. I I just wanted to uh, ask you about Dada because I'm not that familiar with Dada, but the way that you wrote about it, and this was the group of people who were um, hanging out with the Impressionists, is that they seemed more like performance art. So it wasn't so much about uh, painting or writing. It was about living it out the way you were saying about neil cassidy right. that they were they were living their art they would dress up in costume they would disrupt restaurants they would do things in paris that would draw attention to what they were how they were being as though they themselves were the art and not the painting or the writing is that kind of how you see that as well
1: yes you said you said you really you really say it so so well and uh um, let's see, I lost my thought for a second, but they yes, they retreated to Zurich, Switzerland, and they called themselves anti-art, and they were kind of a rebellion against technique. Well, and, and here's the main thing, is that you you can take a, a class in art history, or you can buy an art history book, and you will get a chapter on Dada, and it, it gets respect, it gets admiration, it was an important art movement between Impressionism and Surrealism, and there were some other schools... but but what, what often gets neglected is that they were also a political movement. They were anti-war. And they fought war with playfulness. They embodied the playfulness of the child. And they introduced they, it, it in, in many ways, because I think ultimately disruptive play is only going to help our society out if it's a collective effort. I think an individual can't pull it off. An individual can draw attention to things, but it takes a collective movement, and which Dada was, to really, uh, uh, um, to really bring this idea of playfulness and to be successful at disruptive play. And uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, and, and, and so and so they they did they did that so, so very well, and they were they were frankly enraged by World War One. But they were also the first hippies, and they, you know, they, they proposed. Uh, if you look deep, more deeply into the Dada records of Dada, they were proposing a world of, of peace and love. But they came off as rascals, not, you know, not as, not as, not as, not as just flower children.
2: If if Dada was a political movement, the performance art makes a little bit more sense to me yes. than there being painters or writers. Yes. And and then what comes to my mind when you're talking about performance art and making a political statement, I think about the Smothers brothers.
1: Oh. Absolutely.
2: They had a because
1: national... they were
2: They were anti war and, yes, they, and were. they were entertainment. They weren't, you know, They didn't have the painting or the writing. They did have the music.
1: Yes, and humor.
2: Yeah, and humor.
0: (laughs) And their platform for political expression, in addition to their records, was none other than the big eye-in-the-sky CBS network television in prime time.
1: What a great example. And did they get in trouble? Yes, they did. Oh, they did. All the time. (laughs) All the time. Power does not like it. Power does not like disruptive play, and God bless the Smothers Brothers. It was, I think, you know, I, I hadn't been thinking about them, but that's a really a wonderful example of how, in the '60s, how successfully these revolutionary ideas were able to find a mainstream uh, podium, for lack of a better term, you know, and uh... uh Smothers Brothers definitely definitely fit that. Um, now, other interesting aspect of Dada is be, above and beyond World War One, and then being anti-war, which is the main thing. But it was also so. What what happened is, you know, the French government controlled art, as I said, and and it was very strict. And they had the Salon, and the Salon decided what was and wasn't art, what was and wasn't good, and how much money it could bring. When the Impressionists, because the Impressionists couldn't get in. Their, their art was rejected. So they started their own little rebel institution, and the next thing you know, they took over, you know. Uh, they took over, and they became the main art, and they were fetching large prices. And so what happened, and this is a lifelong struggle between the original play that art represents and the cult, the cultural play that commerce represents. So all of a sudden, the art dealers are buying the Monets and the Monets and the Renoirs and they're selling them and they're doing exhibitions and they're making money and it's working. Commerce comes in and they think they got a great thing going. Next thing you know, the Dada show up. And just like you said, Suzanne, they were more about the performance and the moment. They made things and then they tore them up. You know, they put out magazines. Nothing is more temporary in, in the art world than a magazine. They did posters. They in, ran into restaurants and did crazy things. And then Marcel Duchamp takes a men's urinal, turns it on its side, and it enters it in an exhibition. <laughs> and the dealers go, what are you doing, man? What are you doing yeah. here, we're man? We're just starting to make money off this stuff, and we can't, we can't sell that. Of course, today pieces of art like that are the most expensive pieces in the world, but that's another story. (laughs) But Well, maybe it is the same story, because it's all about how commerce consistently tries to invade when art is just trying to get to something that is commercial-free and and, and to connect with people and remind us how to be playful and how to appreciate beauty in the world without putting a price tag on it. Um,
0: And at the same time to subvert conventional ideas of what art is and particularly what acceptable art is if you were able to take a time machine from the moment where that urinal was on display right. along the way i would be saying to someone you think that's weird wait till the time of robert maplethorpe right you right think you've seen weird you think you've seen subversive and offensive you ain't seen nothing yet
1: Right, 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 and and it, and so there is this constant struggle back and forth. And you know, there's been a lot in the news—the 50th anniversary of Woodstock and everything. And I've been, I've been doing a lot of thinking about it. And of course, in my contrary ways, when everyone else was talking about Woodstock, I went and watched "Give Me Shelter," which is the movie about the debacle at Altamont. Yes. Um, you know, kind of Woodstock's Deadly. dark twin. And I and I, I really. I'm just thinking out loud here. I really haven't come to my own conclusions, but as beautiful and as wonderful as Woodstock was, and the guy running it was smart enough to stop worrying about making money and realizing he had hundreds of thousand people on hand, and he, he did he did Michael Walden is his name he did he did he did, the, he did the right thing and said okay this is now a free concert, and boy we got lucky you know we got lucky that there was very little death there were some wonderful births. Um, the music was great, it, and it, it is a true landmark. But I can't help but think that the captains of commerce <laughs> took a look at Woodstock and went, hmm, arena rock. Yeah. How
2: can we make money on uh, that? How can we capitalize on We, that? Capitalize we knew on we this. were only going to touch the tip of the iceberg, and our hour is already up. Please tell us that you will come back for part two, and we're going to get into more of the book, Disruptive Play. The next
0: interview will be called The Trickster Returns.
1: (laughs) I love talking to you guys. Uh, You're wonderful interviewers, and, and thanks so much, and I can't wait to come back
2: great thank you
0: the book again disruptive play the trickster in politics and culture shepherd siegel phd get this book
2: stay tuned for the christine upchurch show followed by the susan Harmon experience and then american roads trip talk with host gary Mans. let
0: this be the start of a great weekend everyone and stay tuned to am 1150 the preceding audio was via a skype call